Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee owned and operated and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Food Talk this Thursday. Nice, warm spring day in New York City. Let's hope winter's over. Last week it got cold again. It's supposed to rain tomorrow. I think we're almost out of this. Um, went to Peking Duck House last You know, people, people talk about how Manhattan's Chinatown isn't the, thing that, isn't the thing anymore. There's a whole, like, New York crowd that's the everything's better in Flushing crowd. You know who those guys are? It's like Chinatown's better in Flushing. It's kind of true. Flushing has amazing Asian food. Probably the best, probably the best Korean Certainly the best Philippine, great Chinese, um, Corona's got Mexican. But Manhattan's Chinatown's the OG. It's the original one, and it's great. And one of my favorite places was there last week, Friday night, is the Peking Duck House. I was just jonesing for Peking Duck. They, they bring the duck to the table, slice it, serve it with these little pancakes, hoisin sauce, scallions, cucumber. And the best thing about the Peking Duck House is, if you're a wine person, you can bring your own wine, no corkage fees, which is crazy. Um, so a lot, I, I know this because a lot of my Psalm friends do this. A lot of these pictures at the Peking Duck House, and they've got like $350 worth of wine on the table. No corkage fee. Why not? So that's why I go there. Love the Peking Duck House. Love that. Was there last week. We've got a fun show this week. We've got somebody here who's been helping to make my PBS show possible really since day one. That's Colavita Olive Oil. Um, Giovanni Colavita is in the house with us here. He's also helped to make this show possible for the last three years and sustain this network. And with him... His cohort today is Jerry Tercy, who's a character. Jerry is a uh, Neapolitan guy. He went to um, the finest schools in Naples and graduated at the top of his class. Then he went on to the, uh, the Harvard of, of Italy, whatever that is, and magna cum laude, several postgraduate degrees in various things, which we will go into later. Um, and besides all of that, besides that a- academic um, Pedigree. He runs an amazing store in Englewood, New Jersey. And I don't know. I used to do Radio WOR, which was a big commercial AM broadcast call-in station. Iconic New York station. It was one of the best stations in New York City for years and years until it was sold uh, when the owner, unfortunately, died um, unexpectedly. And the family didn't want to run it anymore. But um, I used to have to do all kinds of stuff. I was on the radio six days a week. It was a live call-in show. We always had themes and trips. And at some point on my radar, WOR, I must have gotten in my car. I went to visit Jerry because his place is in Englewood, New Jersey, and it's not like in a mall. It's not like on a main street. It's like an industrial park. It's a 28,000-square-foot specialty store, I think I can call it that, where they make fresh mozzarella every day, prepared foods to go every day, a great selection of Italian specialties, and the prices are crazy. Just this past weekend, the Bergen Record which is like the paper of North Jersey, had a big two-page spread on Jerry. And here's, here's a couple of quotes on 
what he's doing. Uh, where's this price stuff I have? 250 grams of Spinoza pasta. Amazon.com. And I buy stuff from Amazon because they deliver it in two days because I'm an Amazon Prime junkie. Um, on Amazon Prime, you'll pay seventeen fifty for that pasta. He's got it. Seriously. Five bucks? Five bucks. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, Johnny Colavita's here. Three liter tin of Colavita olive oil, which in my house will last three weeks to a month. Uh, thirty nine ninety nine. Usually that's the retail price. Sometimes you'll see a discount at the shop right once in a while. He's got it for ten dollars less. Excuse me, fifteen dollars less at twenty four ninety nine. I guess we'll have to talk to Giovanni how he does that. We got to talk. We got to get a deal here. You must be buying straight containers. We don't know. Um, anyway, welcome both you guys, Giovanni. Let's talk with you just for a second to get started. So. When I was a kid, which is, is the 60s and 70s, which is a horrible thing to think about. Um, I remember like when President Kennedy got shot and that just... I was dazed. just born. <laughs> God bless you. I don't think you were born yet. But anyway, it was like the dark age of American cuisine. Like the 50s were bad. The 60s were the worst. We were it, it, like... Women just didn't... You know, my, my mom's generation didn't want to spend time... In the, my grandmother was amazing, Italian from Molise. She was um, every Sunday there, was lights out. The food was amazing. So I, I kind of grew up in that bubble of like Italian neighborhood. We didn't eat fast food. My grandma was an amazing chef. Uh, but my mom didn't want to cook. Her food is terrible. We would die. We'd have to eat dinner with her. It was like the worst. And and people were moving. Like supermarkets took over. Like like the space program had a big influence on America. I knew a lot of middle class non-ethnic families where I'd go shopping with them and they would buy like powdered milk and tang was a powdered orange juice because the astronauts were doing this stuff. That's what people were doing. Um, so it was like that's what we grew up eating white bread. I mean, outside of like Italian neighborhoods, you just kind of grew up eating crap. Uh, and if you wanted to buy olive oil, you couldn't find it in the supermarkets. It didn't exist. So John Profacci's dad, John Profacci Sr., hooked up with your dad at some point in the 70s, maybe late, early 80s? Well, 78. 78. I had the time frame right. And got this idea to import Colombian olive oil, to bring it in. Uh, John's dad was was in the food business, and he went to a guy named Harold Anderson, who somebody should write a book on this guy. He's a legend. Harold started out as a peddler in South Jersey selling canned vegetables and pickled fruit off of a truck, and in the span of his lifetime, built the largest gourmet import distribution company in America. Um, at its heyday, before they pared it down, he had 17, 18, 19,000 SKUs in his catalog. It, it was like a super, you could buy anything. He, like, he would bring in a case of mustard if you wanted it. So anyway, he went to Harold and said, Harold, I've got this olive oil. And Harold said, let's, let's, let's do it. They built the business up. And as you mentioned, you know, Colavita is like a, uh, the iconic extra virgin olive oil in the country now. Wasn't always like that. So... Now you're on board. Colavita's here in the States. You live here. Your brother's on the West Coast. Um, your sister's here, too? No, she travels back and forth. She goes back. Um, let's go back. Was it three years that the harvest was terrible? Fifteen? The years was, is, was that with this one and two years ago. Two years ago. Talk about the harvest, because olives are this funny thing. They grow all over southern Europe, starting in southern France and Provence, all over Spain, all over Portugal throughout Italy, Sicily, Greek, and then, of course, in the Mediterranean. Um, they've got them in Tunisia, Morocco, all those places. That's where olive trees grow. Talk about the last couple of harvests, because it's so funny. It's almost like grapes. I look at olives and grapes the same way, because neither of them like oxygen, neither of them like heat. They're very specific in terms of terroir and varietals. How bad was this year compared to two years ago? 
Yeah, this is uh, first of all thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Um, this is something sometimes it's difficult to pass to the final consumer because nobody talks about uh, unless like in producing country like in Italy it's a big talk about shortage of production because this year for example Italy produced 50% of the last year production so it's down 50% 50% La- and last year was double of the previous year so two years ago was the same problem 50% production and in this situ- unfortunately in this situation two problems combined production and quality so when you have a quality problem and a production problem this year is very difficult to source the you know the good quality you need to pack uh, the product um, last year has been uh, particularly uh, this uh, this last crop has been particularly critical because Italy had 50% of production Spain I mean the total world production is 3 million tons mm, that's total total 3 million tons 3 million tons okay. of um, on kilo, uh, tons of uh, uh, um, olive oil finished product so uh, Spain usually when there's a good season there's a million and a half it's usually 50% of it they're huge they produce half the world's olive oil this year was 1.2 uh, million tons so a significant uh, loss in production Italy produce 50% of the half million that they usually produce Tunisia had a low production Greece had a low production so there was a lack of production. California, that is uh, still insignificant in the quantity, right. we represent 3% of the world production, and a, a, a very bad production. So it's been a, a, a very bad year. We increased that, for example, for the Italian olive oil, went to up to 100% of the cost of raw material increase. And Spain, like um, country like Spain, had a 30 40% increase in cost. And it's difficult, again, to explain to the consumer those, uh, those right. uh, swings from one year to the other, because next year I can go back to two years ago. And so, but it's a market that is, is based on uh, um, the nature. So if it rains, or if it rains too much, yeah. if it doesn't rain enough, right. it's, I mean, the, the good news is that the trees always survive. It's not like uh, hazelnuts. They, they always survive. They don't need a lot of water to survive, but in order to produce, they do. So three years ago, I remember I was in Italy in the fall, and there was two different parasites that were the problem. They'd had a real mild winter. They never had a, a hard freeze the winter before. And I'm talking about from Tuscany all the way down. You don't get hard freezes in Sicily. But in the, in the northern region, Tuscany, Umbria, um, they never had a hard winter. The spring was wet and foggy and not good. And they had some kind of a little a fly and a little like a mosquito. These two things almost never happened in the same year, and they both happened. And I know in parts of Tuscany, a lot of Tuscany, that year they had zero oil. Yeah. What was the, what was the cause this year of the problem? Uh, this year was a combination of similar problems. Some area had the fly, the olive oil fly. Uh, there was uh, too, mu- too, uh, so too much water in some area. In the wrong. It depends even the water and the lack of water depends even on when. Right. And, you know, it can be just like just problem. like wine, just like wine. If it rains during the harvest, you're dead. Two years ago, there was a lot of talk about the, the, the low production because at the same time there was the problem of uh, um, an infection to the plants that would kill the trees. So there was a lot of that going on, but was thank God. I mean, unfortunately, was uh, we lost a lot of uh, uh, very old trees, so pretty trees. But for production, it's not significant mm-hmm. because those trees don't produce anymore. Don't right. produce uh, no harvest, let's say anymore. Uh, unfortunately, that, that uh, bacteria was uh, was uh, found and was solved, and was uh, so the problem is not. Uh, present anymore but there was a lot of talk because people were worried about this spreading around in other countries and other areas of Italy 
Yeah, because the olive trees, I, I learned this, the olive trees are incredibly sturdy. I've traveled through southern France, through Spain extensively, through Italy extensively, and I, I, I use the wine analogy because we'll just pick Italy. Um, I don't know what the total amount of grape varietals are in Italy, but it exceeds 2,000 grape varietals, including ancient indigenous ones, ones that, you know, we all know the, the Big Ten, but there's lots and lots of smaller ones. And with olive varieties, there's well over 1,000 throughout Italy. Uh, the the one in production uh, there are many but the one in production are over 400, 400. which is a, a, a big number and uh, wh- while you compare for example with uh, California has three varieties so Spain has ten varieties Italy California has how many three three mainly three then they, you know they can be other added but they make production significant number of production are three varieties in um, Spain you have ten varieties Italy is the richest country of varieties and that gives that balance that mm. flavor. I mean, the, the oil can... Um... And, and just like wine, it depends on the terrace, it depends on the altitude, it depends on the varietal, it depends... I mean, it's, I, I think the analogy between olives and grapes are just... It's pretty much spot on. Um, and olive trees are crazy. So most every other tree that I know, if you cut the tree at the ground level, you get a saw and you cut it and you leave a stump in the ground, that tree is dead. You do it to an olive tree and they grow back. <laughs> right? You don't kill them. You don't, it's crazy. You don't kill them. Right, they're they're like they're they're like the for some reason. I mean, they have this, and, and I also think like you know, olive oil goes back like to biblical times. It's so ancient in history that we've been using it for medicinal reasons for cooking. It's like this great relationship between men. But the olive tree, like I remember, like going in olive or, in olive orchards and seeing the tree cut down. And say, what's the matter? So it's going to grow back. And then I would see trees that they had cut down the same way years ago with a new shoot coming up the middle. So they're 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 almost indestructible except for this mold you're talking about. Yeah. Sorry, let's bore down without getting too, too geeky. You have been the leader in Italian extra virgin olive oil for as long as I've known. Um, And for most of that time, now you're branching out because you've grown so much as a brand that Italy's not producing enough oil for you. So I believe you're sourcing oils from other countries as well now? We do different uh, collections. We have still, uh, and our primary focus is always uh, the... 100% 100% Italian, which is our roots and where we come from and what the, you know our brand design with. But at the same time, we offer um, different uh, selection from the world. We have a European selection. We have, uh, um, spe- we have 100% Spain, 100% Greek, 100% Portugal, 100% Australian. So we offer a selection of the world. And this could to give the consumer an opportunity to taste right. other oil profile right. and to have fresh oil all year long, because of course, in Australia is producing oil at the opposite time. Right, right? they're counter seasonals. Yeah. Like right now, it's the middle of the summer in Australia. The harvest will be in the spring. That fresh oil hit the market in the summer, which is six months ahead of when your Italian oil will come in next year's harvest. And I have I have <laughs> to say that uh, we were the I mean the first company to launch this concept. Uh, after Fairway, actually, because Fairway with Steve uh, Jenkins was the first idea of a collection of uh-huh. uh, the world. But as a, as a brand, we were the first one to launch, and then uh, All Foods came and other companies joined this concept, which I think is important because it gives the... As in wine, you can want to try more countries, more varieties. Even on the oil, it's good to have this opportunity and open your mind. I mean, of course, my heart is Italian. So I would say, yes, Italian. But at the same time, it's good. The Greek, Greece has a tremendous soil. Uh, yeah, there's Argentina wonderful oils. I've traveled to Morocco. Yeah. And I mean, there's, so the there Middle is, East has great oils, too. They're just in, so, uh, it just really depends on the fruit. The, and they're all a little bit different in terms of the flavor profile. And then sometimes the problem is with Italy is, is uh, quantity. 
but can even be quality like this year or two years ago it's tough to find the right quality and we want to maintain that high level of quality and premiumness for our consumer so that's why we offer the collection if there's not enough of italian you can buy the other selection but there's something high quality product Every country is. I was in Peru a couple of years ago filming for the show, and they've got olive oil. They've got olive oil. I was like, I had no bloody idea. I mean, they had avocados and seafood and, you know, uh, 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 all kinds of grains and stuff, but they have olive oil. So so the world's olive oil consumption keeps increasing. Can I assume yes, that? Yes, yes. And America must be leading the way with that. American olive oil consumption yeah, must be going if up. If you consider that uh, in uh, in the U.S., the average consumption is one liter per year per person. <laughs> but that's up from nothing. Yeah. That's so... In Italy, we have uh, four, uh, a family of four use a bottle a week. Yeah, I think in my so, house, I go know. through. I mean, it's it's the oil we use all the time. Depend. It's Jerry talking about. Depend which one. I use a bottle a day. <laughs> it's a lot of oil. I love it. Why? Yeah. I put them everywhere. So, Jerry, let's jump to you for one second. Talk about you. You have this crazy story. So you came here as a kid. You, you basically left here, told your mom you were going somewhere else in Italy, hopped on a boat, ended up in New York, um, did a bunch of things, from Brooklyn Navy Yard to construction. But I want to get you, I want to get you in Chelsea in the 70s. So at some point, you'd morphed from construction to this to that. You were doing flea markets. Yes, I do. And you were in a building on 17th Street. No, I started first. I started on Chamber Street. The, you know, that old, the old one that was used the to be down there. The old market. Yes. Then I started on 17th Street, where it was really the heart of the perfume people. It was all perfume be sold. And uh, but we don't want to sell perfume. We were sell like everything we can buy. You know, we used to sell a two liter bubble bed. After the bubble bed, you know, you get rash. <laughs> you also, I want to put it, what year was this? Late 70s? It was uh, 72. Yeah, early 70s. So just, I mean, really, up until Zeckendorf built those towers on the southeast corner of, of Union Square Park, Union Square was a horrible neighborhood. I mean, really, Manhattan south the, of 42nd the needle, Street. The Needle Park. It was it, Needle Park. You needed, the park itself was a joke. 14th Street was, you would, I mean, it was 99 cent stores. It was just, it was, I mean, I, I never shopped there and I had no money. It was like, come on. <coughs> you shop there. Everybody shop there. No, I really didn't. But yeah, I was everybody six shop, days a week. I everybody shop, shop at Maze. I was a cook. You never went to Maze? No, I never went. I was, never I was, went to clients? I wore whites. I wore, they gave me uniforms. Uh, you, were, you wore the, you were the man with the money. No, no, no. I wasn't Spacone. I was a, I was a punk. Um, but that neighborhood back then was crazy. So this is a crazy nice. story. So you had this your store, and then your partner who was with you decides he just wants to leave, and he gives you his half the business. Right. He buys an Eldorado Cadillac and drives across country. Right. He bought an Eldorado from the garbage man and said, that's what I am. <laughs> and this is I'm a beautiful Eldorado. i to go to Vegas. This was the convertible. This car is about 22 feet long. It looked like a land yacht. <laughs> when I was a kid, my, I had a, was working in a restaurant in Philly, and the owner, one of the owners had a Rolls Royce, the other had a Cadillac Eldorado. And when it was slow, they'd make me wa- they'd tell me to wash their cars, which I was happy to do. And I just loved that Eldorado. The door on that Eldorado was, was like six huge. feet long. It was such a cool and, American and car. And this one was a gold. <laughs> gold. But anyway, so, so your partner leaves, and then you're talking to your landlord, and you make a deal with your landlord that you're going to buy the building. He came and offered it to me. Okay. okay. I had no money. You had enough money to give him a little deposit. I had no money. How am I going to buy you? How did you buy it? How did I buy it? He came back. He said to me, he says, uh, 
why don't you take it? I'm going to take it. Give me the money. Say, you know what? Give me a little bit at a time. We name it the price. We shake hand. That's it. That's it. No formal document. No, no document. No legal thing. Every three months, this is what you pay me. Here's the interest if no. you're late. It was a paper. Piece of paper. You and him. Signed. Done. Yeah, no. 1975, I wrote the paper. 1975. So the building's on 17th Street, steps off of 5th Avenue. Right. Between 5th and Broadway, north side of the block. Four stories, five stories? Five stories. Five stories. If you don't mind going public, what did you pay for the building? What I pay? Yeah. A loft of bread. <laughs> Give me your eighty thousand dollars. Eight eighty thousand bucks. Eighty thousand dollars for a building on Seventeenth Street. It's crazy. It's and, then, crazy. and then you had another store. So one, so you have that building, and then one day you're mad because the the building next to you is like a mixed use building, and there's people living upstairs, Beautiful but they're building. not supposed to put the garbage out because. It's not commercial, it's residential, and that means you got to pay somebody else to do the blah, 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 because there's two different ways to put right. garbage in New York. So you start getting mad, and you put the garbage back in her hallway, because you know it's her garbage. Right. She, she comes over to me the building. She comes over to you, and she says, you know, do me a favor. Why don't you buy my building for me? Right. How much? And the building, it's... Uh Goes from 17th to 18th Street. It's the entire block through. It's so about 7,000 square feet. Huge. The artists, they used to live there. They used to pay $700 a month for the floor. And uh, I said, how much you want it? She said, give me $350,000. <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 76, 77. For that much space. Today, the- it's maybe $15 million aloft. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. New York's hysterical that way. But if I had the Giovanni Colavita... Maybe I had the money. Nobody had the money back then. We all have stories. I had a f- we were investing at the time. I had, I had a friend that wanted to sell me when I was living in Cape May and I wanted to come back. She had a one-family brownstone in Harlem, but southern Harlem, like Edgecombe Avenue in the 120s. And we went. She, we looked. She'd renovated three of the five floors. It was one family. This is the true story. This is 1991, 92. She wanted $130,000 for the brownstone. And I decided no, and I ended up moving to New Jersey to Maplewood, and I bought a house, and I didn't like the suburbs too much, and I missed the beach. And but I mean, that's I could have bought a freaking brownstone yeah. in Harlem right now. That brownstone is worth four million. Yeah, the the, the property was a, was nothing. Yeah, look at Tribeca. I know, Tribeca was a nothing. You had a Tribeca story. What was yeah, that? Story? I had a building in Tribeca. The Bazzini nut. What was the story about those buildings? There was no. I bought a building right by Ponte, the restaurant by Fili Ponte. I give it right three, off the water. Three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. For a building. For a building. I don't know what it's worth to today. Then I was by the building by Bazzini. There is the old hospital in New York City where the two buildings are the bridge together. Yeah, across the street. Right. And uh, was 280. For a building. For the building. A loft building. So that's one of these buildings. But there they, they was... The, you walk the in. floors are four feet concrete thick. The walls are six feet thick. But you walk in, you know, at the hole in the ground, a metal plate, where they used to pull the pallet, that's what you buy. Yeah. But today, that that loft, it's $40 million. <laughs> I know it's 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 crazy. New York's crazy that way. Um, let's take a quick break for uh, the sponsors of the show to get their shout-outs, and we're to come back because Johnny, I want to talk to you about. We had a guy here a while back who wrote a book. Um, 
was it called Truffle Boy or something? He was good, young kid, stoked kid. Got himself in the truffle business. He's from the middle of nowhere, from Omaha or Oklahoma or something. And now he's like one of the biggest truffle guys, really into fine ingredients. Young, young guys in his twenties. And we go out on the subject of olive oil, and I was talking about all of the fraud that's been in olive oil over the years because the American labeling laws are so ridiculously porous on things like country of origin, which we won't want to go into. But, I mean, you and I know that you guys have been playing by the rules since day one. But a couple of the other brands that might begin with a B and end with an I or an O and have Bertoldi or Burio in the middle. I mean, they were selling olive oil for years that looked like it was product of Italy, said product of Italy, and it was just tank farm stuff. Like, you had no idea what DNA was in all of it. It was, just, it was a, a commercial blend of stuff they were buying on the world market. I mean, the, the problem in, on, uh, with the olive oil, I'm, right now, I think the major problem is in the food service industry, where there is uh, zero controls in this country, unfortunately, on the quality of olive oil, of the blends. And at retail, uh, I, I mean, the major player uh, play a fair game in the quality of on the, um, yeah, the product is legitimate. Mm. The origin is still a problem because um, the way the regulation... I mean, we, we decide to go straight and, like, how are 100% Spain, say, on the front, in, you know, in huge capital letters, say, 100% Spain, 100%... Because we want to transfer to the consumer the message, as I was saying before, that the origin doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean quality or not quality. The quality is a characteristic in itself, not on the origin. Because every country has great product and a terrible product. Yep. That, yep. That's true for every country, yep. including our country. Yep. So, uh, but the consumer using the Italian, using the imported from Italy, packed in Italy, separate from the countries of origin, is something that uh, is not fair to the consumer. Because most of the, com- the, the, the company, they do that, they put on the front, big, imported from Italy or packed in Italy, and then on the, in the back... You see Tunisia, Spain, agree. that doesn't mean bad, but they do that packet in Italy in the front yeah. because the consumer like switch and bait. I mean, assume it gives, right. it's Italian. Right. And they use Italian name. They use... Uh, they use it uh, like uh, Tuscany, but it's olive oil. But yeah. people, they recognize the name. Yeah, Jerry and I were talking. I, I remember, Tuscany. I remember years ago, I was at Whole Foods, I think, and I was looking for tomatoes, and there was a 28-ounce tin of tomatoes there. It was a white paper label, and it was a pretty, what's a fancy label? It was a 28-ounce white paper label, had a colored red tomato, and in black ink it said San Marzano. I thought, that's really interesting. So I bought the can, I took it home, I opened it up, and it was, it was, it was these were Jersey tomatoes or California tomatoes. And it's a company that's made, its whole business is they label their tomatoes, I mean, as if San Marzano was like a name that doesn't mean anything, and they're not even Italian tomatoes. Well, that's what they're doing. But, yeah. but on the other side, we have to be careful at the same time, because there's been a, a campaign, uh, you know, pushed by the California industry, to uh, denigrate the, everything is important in the olive oil business and try to say it's not legitimate, the other is not legitimate, the other is not legitimate. I mean, those have company, including us, being in this business for four years. We were the first company in the extra virgin olive oil in this country. So let's be careful because a lot of that, it's not, it's a campaign against the imported product. Mm. There is some true, again, again, especially in food service, but most of it is product packed here, not imported. There's a lot of cheating in the food service industry. With companies, they don't have a brand. They have nothing to lose. They get a fine. So what? They have cheated for so, so, long, for so much volumes, they can recover. We have a brand as a company, as other important brand in this country. So I can afford 
to make a mistake on my quality because I, I end up on the newspaper and then my consumer. So my, I am, my quality is consistent in food service and in retail. People, they don't have a brand. They are just doing food service in a garage. or in a, it's, not, it's not their problem. That's the major problem. We'll talk about that after the break. Um, take a quick break. We'll be back in about three minutes with Jerry Tercy from Bizarro Tercy. The Bizarro comes from his former partner, who was bizarre enough to leave the business and drive across country to El Dorado. Um, and Giovanni Profacci, because I want to talk more about... We'll talk about that, the institutional olive oil problems, and then like break down what extra virgin is, what the next type of oil is, things like pomace and how they extract pomace oil, and then how it all gets blended and confused. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey folks, Mike Calameco here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s, when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. 
Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. All right, Giovanni, let's pick it up. So you're right about the food service thing, because I used to be in the restaurant business, um, and I knew about olive oil. So let's talk about how olive oil's made. Let's just start from the beginning. So we have these olive trees, and, and back in the old days, yeah, these, you, you know, you'd have farmers that would put ladders up in the trees and have a little rake, and they would rake the olives off. They had little uh, uh, ground would be covered by blankets, and the olives would fall onto the ground, and that was the old harvest. Now I believe a lot of the harvest is mechanical with those, those machines that shake the tree, right? Yeah. Same, same idea. But then there's, at this point, you kind of, not kind of, at this point, you kind of quickly want to do an inspection of the olives that you're harvesting, if there's any bad ones, to get rid of them. But you want to get it quickly to the press. The longer it waits, the more issues you have, just like wine. When you pick the grapes, you want to get those grapes out of oxygen, crushed, get that juice down, and start the fermentation. Talk about, some, talk about, about how the olive oil harvest works now. And I know you're not using the old, uh, what are those grinders, not Montoya, the old grinders, the old stone grinders, not those anymore. Because now you've got the ones that expand. But talk about how olive oil is made in Italy and what, 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 what makes extra virgin extra virgin in terms of testing and organoleptic examination? Yeah, the, um, the harvest is still uh, uh, not fully mechanica- mechanized in Italy because we don't have uh, intensive uh, uh, growth like uh, California or Argentina or other countries have it, or Spain. But we have still a traditional system. So we have trees, big trees, and we have uh, uh, the, the most advanced, let's say, mechanization in the olive oil harvest are the shakers. And, but they, you still have uh, the collection of values after you shake. Uh, and uh, you need to... Uh, the, the process is the shaker make the process faster. Mm. And the goal is to keep, uh, as you were saying, the olives from the moment get picked, start the oxidation process and the aging process in the olive. So you want to make that as quick as possible to the meal in order to process those olives. And uh, this is uh, the other thing in Italy, different from other countries, is the fragmentation of the property. You don't have 100 acres, 200 acres. You have small property, that, and uh, the owner of the product at the end are the millers, because they buy the olives from the producer, and they control the product. While in the largest country, like in the, in the different system, like the California or, the, or the Spain, the producer control the product, or the large cooperative control the product, because they have their own mills, because they have larger properties. And, but anyway, once you process with the, the, mecha, with the traditional system of the automatic, automatized one that used uh, again in California, uh, you still obtain it's the, the timing to the, to, the tree, to the mill that makes the difference, and the quality of the olives, of right. course, first. Right. So once you harvest the, olive, the olives and you process the olives with whatever process you use, traditional or the, or the other process used, the most modern uh, system used, you obtain an oil that has to be 
um, after obtain, you have to analyze in order to to know if it is extra virgin or not. And it will depend from if you follow the process, if you have the, the right olives, the right the right timing and the right process. So what it makes the extra virgin is the, the acidity level, but it's not enough anymore. Before it used to be, as long as it's below a certain grade of acidity, right. it's extra virgin. Now it has to have some positive characteristic in addition to it. So it has to be evaluated. There's a panel system. Correct. There is. In Italy, in Italy there's people, in Italy, like there's sommeliers, there's men and women that are certified yeah. as olive oil tasters, and they do this on a daily basis, basically. Yes. So the, the, the olive is subject to that, too. And uh, so that's the, the top of the category, so the extra virgin olive oil. Then we go in other products like the olive oil, the pure olive oil is called in the United States, uh, which is a combination of refined olive oil and virgin olive oil. So when the oil, it's uh, called the fine lampant, and it is always above uh, a certain acidity level, and has some defects in terms of odor, of, uh, gets refined, and with the chemical, um, uh, chemical adds, the oil basically become tasteless and uh, smellless. Yeah. So in that it's point, it's a hexene extraction. It's yeah. the same. It's in that gasoline, hexene, benzene. They use for somehow that that you're able to take like that either the oil and also the leftover pits, the that yeah. mess, and then still extract oil from that with hexene and a centrifuge. But it's, it's but it's not good oil. Basically, basically it gets uh, gets those defects get taken away. Uh-huh. The oil you get is still the same, but is without any of those characteristics. And then the reason why the is request to add virgin olive oil to it is to give back flavor and some taste. So that's the olive oil that has a different usage. It's not better or worse. It's a different product. It's a different application. As you know, as a chef, it's, uh, you know, the extra virgin is, as a usage, the olive oil, it's an oil that because was treated with high temperature, the pure olive oil, it can be used because it's, uh, you know, as a higher uh, point of smoke. Yeah, I don't, people always used to, when I used to do radio and get phone calls and do cooking classes, People would ask if I sautéed with extra virgin olive oil, and I said, no, I really don't. A, it's really too expensive. I don't have that kind of budget. But B, a lot of what I love about it, the the esters, the delic, that gets lost with heat. I mean, you put a pan on the stove, let that oil smoke before you put your protein in it. That oil's over 400 degrees, and at that point, you've ruined the extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. So you may as well be using pure olive oil or pomace oil or, or whatever. Oh, the blends, the canola the blends. and the blends. That is, uh, yeah. Basically, it's a, a more an American thing. In, right. in Europe, we don't use blends. Right. But in the U.S., uh, uh, the largest product used for those kind of applications are the blends. So what's the word you use? I'm calling it pomace. What's the word in Italy for that kind of oil? Sansa. Sansa. Pomace, basically, it's um, it's a similar process to the olive oil, to the refined olive oil, the, to the pure. And is uh, the only difference that one is coming from the oil, the other is ex- uh, the pomace is extract from uh, the leftover after the crush of the olives, whatever is left. So it's that it's that murky, muddy yes. looking, but you can still get something out of it, and that's how they extract the pomace. You extract that, and um, again, it's the same. The oil becomes tasteless and smellless. And flavorless, and uh, at that point, you have to add again virgin olive oil to add that uh, flavor character to get it. So you can add 10, 15, 20 percent, and you'll have some semblance of yeah. Each one has there's not a minimal request really, mm-hmm. but there is a there is a request to add, and so it goes from 10 to 15 to 20 percent. So it depends from the each company that this makes its own decision. Olive oil storage, we know that olive oil, just like wine, again, it if if, if you have it in glass containers at home, it doesn't like sunlight. It doesn't like heat, and it doesn't like oxygen. 
exactly like yep. storing wine. So you want to keep a lid on it. You want to keep it in a cool space, and you want to keep it in a, in a, like in a closet or something. What about refrigerating olive oil? Is that considered a no no? No, no, it's not a problem. The problem with the refrigerating olive oil that uh, um, people they do that, or when in the supermarket sometimes it's too cold, it's still, it's still solidifies. Solidifies. Yeah. And they used to get in complaints and phone calls. The oil is not good. The oil is not. And unfortunately, even some chef don't know that, which is surprising still. But uh, uh, the problem is that that's a natural part of oil. If it yeah. doesn't happen, it's a problem. Because I know <laughs> that fat of oil does solidify. <laughs> if you don't have it, you have to worry about when If you put it in the refrigerator and the oil doesn't solidify, yeah. it's a problem. When you put <laughs> extra virgin olive oil in the refrigerator, you come back in a day, it should be a white, yeah. solid, it should, almost looks like wax. So what happens yeah. to it? The answer is don't worry about it. It's good. When you go to use that next time, take it out, let it sit at room temperature for an hour or two. It'll come clear again and go ahead. But the oil doesn't need to be refrigerated. Um, needs to be, you know, uh, doesn't need to be in the heat, of course. But room temperature is fine for the oil. And uh, the lights is the li- the light and the air are the two major enemies yeah, of the oil. It's exactly like wine. So, um, That's why they use a, a lot of black bottle now. Yeah, and I always like. I still think those three kilo tins, and even the smaller tins, you see it in Europe yeah. all the time. It looks like paint thinner in America, but those like you know, I don't know what the size is, but in, in Europe, it's. I, I I I would imagine the vast majority of retail olive oil is in some form of a tin because they use them more. Yeah, and actually, you see, we see more and more, and we are uh, following this uh, new segment of the smaller sites, which is growing because there are a lot of single, there are a lot of, uh, and the new generation knows. More and more about they read they you know they get educated now the social media helps a lot of it even if they don't travel they get to know and they they are aware of it and they buy smaller sites they more a quarter liter they buy half liter they don't buy one liter if you are single because it will last you if you use a, a liter per year it'll last you four years I mean so it's uh, the, the usage is growing especially in the area where the youngest like in the San Francisco area where now in the all the young, uh, new uh, generation are concentrating. You know, the, that's an area where the, the the smaller sides are growing. That makes sense. Even I know, even with me, with my family now. Now it's just me and my wife and one of my sons home. When I used to make tomato sauce, I used to open up a twenty-eight ounce can of tomatoes, and that was there would always be some leftover. But that was like my kind of go-to size. Now I love, you know, Cheerios got that small. I don't know what it's called. It's that little plastic. Uh, Pack, but, yeah. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I love I mean it's like it's like ten or twelve ounces. That's like the perfect size for tomato sauce for three people. So it's the same, same sort of thing. Like why make extra and freeze it when you can make enough and it's just for dinner. Jerry, how's your business growing? It's growing like crazy. Very good. Very good. How many years you've been in Englewood? Uh maybe twenty. And your customers, you've got a great loyal customer base. Because, again, as I mentioned in the setup, you're not like on a main street where you can take the train and you're going to walk past the hair salon and the, the puppy store and the Dwayne Reed. No, you're you're kind of in an industrial area where you yeah. got to, you, you have to know you, you're driving there specifically to go to Bizarro Turchi. Or you drive it or you walk. If you walk to go and buy a Porsche next door, you walk. You got a Porsche dealer next door? Next door. It's a Tan Motor. Porsche, Audi. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's the people that walk, but they actually look at the building. Sometimes they wait. They're coming in, and they don't get out. 
28,000 square feet, which is almost half the size of a giant supermarket. Most supermarkets today, the big ones in the, in the suburbs, try and opt for 40,000 square feet when they can. So you're big. You've got a full-on kitchen making food every day. You're making fresh mozzarella every day. You do wholesale or just, just retail? I do a little bit wholesale. But mostly retail. I, I will sell the you know, sell And wine, too. Wine. We oh. do a big selection of wine. That's a great selection, actually. So what you were telling me last night? I don't remember the wine we part end, at all. We handle about 1,500 Italian wine. Mostly Italian. Very little Argentina. Maybe French, very, very little. He has a sommelier that, that's uh, recommend He's you the wine. He's a winemaker. So, yeah. He's fantastic. And it's another, you know, talking about Italy and, 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 and quality. I mean, all of us, I'm... In the last month, I've had two master sommeliers on the show, Pascaline and Fred Dex, and another, uh, uh, Victoria, who's, and her husband, who's Kermit Lynch's representative for the United States. So we talk about wine a lot on this show. And in Italy, the, it's true everywhere, but I think in Italy, too, because I'm Italian, I kind of take it personally. The quality's really radically improved in the last 20 years across the board. Yep. From, from Chianti to Sicily. I mean, I think about, like... Especially the South. You go back to Sicily 20 years ago, and it was just Nero d'Avila. It was just... They didn't care. It was big and yield. They were selling it to the mainland to blend. And now yeah. I go to Sicily. I mean, Mount Etna is one of the most talked about wine-growing regions on planet Earth. And down south, it's just getting cleaner and better and more refined. And it's really great to see that. They're very good. They're very good. The south has started to really put out great wine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Italian wines are, are, are super. Um, so... You got, tell me about the restaurant. We got to do this at the end. So, Al Nicoletta, tell, how did you guys meet up on this idea? Because I remember you told me years ago, yeah, I got a building. I got want to do something with it. What, I had how, the how restaurant. Did this restaurant come I about? had the restaurant before in uh, Tenefly. And we used to cook a lot of authentic, authentic Italian food. But it was maybe the wrong year. People didn't want to understand. Mm. You know, they want the American stuff. And I lost, uh, I lost track because they used to coming in and they want to use Parmigiana and seafood. And uh, he said to me, Jerry, this is America. Why not? I say, you know what? This is America. Get up, go to Charlie Brown. <laughs> no, the, the, story, the story of the restaurant is funny. I, go, I get to... Jeff is a, a, a large, uh, as a wholesaler, is a large distributor of our product, especially on the chocolate side in the Bachi Pelagia. It's a big. I get to know money, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to shake them down like they shake down the olives. <laughs> and uh, one day I walk in his office and he say, We're going to do, re- do a restaurant. I said, Where? What? He said, We're going to open a restaurant. I say, Yeah, you know, those things. You say, Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. We meaning you and him. Me, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll do it, do it. And you, you know, I left there, by we'll go back and, oh, by the way, the last one, yeah, yeah, we'll do the last one. One day, he tell me, okay, so next month, we have to start with, I said, what do you mean we have to start? Yeah, next month, the the, um, the tenant is leaving, we are ready. <laughs> so we call the act that we do that. But the, the, really, the decision was, let's do something authentic Italian, affordable, casual, not something where everyone can come. Mm. And can enjoy Italian food with no compromise, as, as Jerry was saying. Not putting Parmigiano where it doesn't need to be put. Right. And using all authentic ingredients. So between the product we import, the product Jerry wholesales, uh, we add all those authentics. Uh, and plus we use other, of course, uh, special 
supplier, like you know the the fantastic fish right. from Citadella, and uh, all those uh, those um, the supplier authentic uh, good food Italian. And I mean, fish is not Italian; it's not going to be Italian, but right. uh, fresh ingredients. And we had that where we said how we put this together. We found uh, a young Italian chef from Puglia, and which doesn't like compromise. So we said, okay, that's what we wanted. And we put together. I mean, it's not uh, it's not our it's not my business, definitely, but it's uh, you know it's a pleasure and is enjoying uh, bringing friends over and seeing that they come back and say, oh, finally we find uh, because in New York there's many restaurants, there are many restaurants, but there is not many authentic non-compromise casual restaurants. Yeah, yeah, sure. and to be to wholesale and hear about all these restaurants when. They want to buy pasta. It's got to be people, are, you can count them on a hand that they use good pasta. Which is crazy, right? The rest, they I mean, want. It's crazy. I, I was the rest, they want. You're saving pasta is nothing. I was uh, about to say, uh, like, uh, even at home, like, if you don't buy good pasta, like, what's pasta? A good pound, a pound of good pasta costs $4. Three dollars, four dollars, five dollars, whatever. What's Parmesan Reggiano cheese cost? The cheese is more expensive than the pasta. Sometimes the tomatoes are more expensive than the pasta. I mean, why would you cheap? Cheap pasta is so bad. The it's like pasta, you ruin the dish. The pasta you do four portion in a pound. It's a dollar. Yeah, I know it's not the Parmigiano. If you put a spoon, it's a dollar and a quarter. I know. I, was, I agree. I know. I know. You know what I mean? But people they don't understand. I know Americans are funny when it comes and, to that. Uh, I don't get it. And that's the biggest problem. That the peoples expect what they expect from Italy, because today everybody travels. They're coming back, and they they see that it's different. Okay, and me personally, when I go, sometimes I left. The guy says, "Tonight we have a special, pappardelle with uh, tartufo." Yeah, how much? Seventy dollars. What do you do? You give me a tartufo? <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's crazy to me. Yeah, well, that's it, it, the restaurant business, and that's no, the truffle business. I and. understand the rent. I understand everything. But I don't know. I think became a rage. And a lot of the things, like I say, I can say aloud, but a lot of restaurants, they want to buy cheap ingredients. Yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, you know this with the olive oil business. We see it yeah. in the side. Right? I mean, when I had my restaurant in Cape May, New Jersey, you know, Cape May is not a rich town, and we had to keep the prices reasonable. And I had to find good wholesalers, and I was buying from um, Al Cicatelli, the Don Cento at the oh, time. Al was a yeah. good friend of mine. So, and he is in South Jersey, so I was getting my tomatoes from him and my pasta from him, and I was buying Dicecco. It's a really good Abruzzese pasta. I grew up eating it. And Al was like, why don't you, I have my own brand, Anna. A-N-N-A. Why don't you use Anna Pasta? And I said, dude, I've cooked with it before. It's not the same. Like, but I can give you a deal. I said, I, but, but to your point, I don't, I don't care if Anna's half the price of DiCecco. That doesn't matter to me. There's four portions in a pound. We're talking about nickels and dimes. And, I, you know, one is al dente and delicious, and the other one, not so much. So it, it's funny. It's- what I recommend to my custom, even the scheme of by San Marzano, nobody, American, they know the San Marzano, it's one square mile. It's tiny. I was there. I visited. The rest, yeah. the land, yeah. it's Pagano, Nocera, yeah. uh, uh, Vietri, Pestum. It's go up to us. And then the trail that comes down from north, from Rome, and they go down to 
angry. And they make a tomato. Then they put a, on the thing, San Marzano. You know, it's a, it's a lot of things, you know, we are in the air. But it's a lot of companies, that's what they do. Yeah, I know. The food business is crazy. And in the U.S., it doesn't help that... I mean, Europe's a lot better with the laboring laws, but the, in the U.S., the labeling laws are just a joke. I mean, we have no inspectors. There's no, there's no credibility to it. You can kind of call anything anything and get away with it, and you're not going to get called out. It's just the but way it is. But inspection as a quality, no, as a region. It means like, you know, San Marzano is San Marzano. And whatever you jar, you put a San Marzano. But you don't take the, the, the semi, the season, from San Marzano. You bring them to pest them, <laughs> and you call them a Samarzana tomato. Well, you got to tell the Italians that too, because the Italians are famous for this. You know, I don't want to say it doesn't. It just, this idea didn't start in America. But the Italians, right? they got our head. They don't want to <laughs> listen. I know it's funny. I deal with it. guys. Thanks so much for coming out, Giovanni Caldavita. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. and thank you again for my heart for your family. Because for since since day one, I believe since the very first episode of my show on PBS. You guys have been on board. You've helped this station the last few years. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep up the great work. Welcome, because now you're raising your family on the Upper East Side, so you're a full-time resident. Welcome to New York City. Jerry Tersey. Thank you, Mike. Not bad for a guy that... Um, thank what, you. What was your... Oh, I was kidding a little bit. You graduated... From the Harvard University of Naples. Harvard University of Naples. That's exactly <laughs> right. Go, go Google it. Stay tuned. We'll be back next week. I don't know what we're doing, but I've got a couple of guests. Take care. See you then. Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Get ready.